0: Well, had a glorious talk with Lucas yesterday. Very, very encouraging. And I hope that you're praying for him, his wife, and kids every day. So let me pray, and then we will open up the Colossians 3, and I will read from the scripture there. Father, thank you. Thank you for the glory of knowing you. Thank you for creation. Thank you for redemption. Now speak to us through thy holy word, we pray. Speak to our hearts, softening. Speak to our wills, turning them towards you. And speak to our affections, brightening with love and adoration for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John, can you take this whole podium and go forward about six inches? Thank you. And stand with me in Colossians chapter 3. That's perfect. Colossians 3, start with verse 1. This is glorious scripture. If then, New American Standard, if then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God Wow! when Christ who is our life is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory therefore put to death the members of your earthly body, your earthly man as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which amounts to adultery. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive, obscene speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to an epigenosical according to the image of the one who created him, in which there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, And whoever has a complaint against anyone, as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. The word of God. You may be seated. Preliminary today. We want to come back and do some contextual review And first take a look again at the sins of the prodigal, the sins of the prodigal, chapter three, verse five. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. The first four sins are the sin identified in John 8, first half, the woman taken in adultery. But the fifth stand covetousness. Well, that's which commandment, Daniel? Which commandment thou shalt not covet? What? 10, commandment 10. Thou shalt not covet. Listen again to Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs talking not about covetousness, but about what the God-purposed intention behind that command is contentment. He said, You worship God more by contentment than when you come to hear a sermon or spend an hour in prayer or when you receive a sacrament. These are acts of God's worship, but they are only external, outside of ourselves, acts of worship to hear and pray and receive the sacrament. But contentment is the soul's worship, subjecting itself to God. In active obedience, we worship God by doing what pleases God, but by passive obedience, We do as well worship God by being pleased and content with what God does. Hmm. Puritans, we Puritans are very proud of our active worship, regularity principle, but how are we with our passive worship, being pleased, with the circumstances God has allowed in my life. Hmm. Well, sins of the elder brothers, sisters, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. What about this movement from anger to wrath? Because Jim doesn't Ephesians 426 say be angry but do not sin but then it says do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. that's 426. Now, in 31 through 32 of Ephesians 4, he kind of comes to a summary and says, So let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away, along with all malice, and in its place be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The juxtaposition of these two commands, put off anger and be kind, means the next time you're tempted to get angry, God is saying, stop, halt in your tracks, now, you be kind, and you be compassionate, and you be patient. That's what the scripture means. So, there is no doubt a proper place for righteous indignation, but there is still temptation to regard God. My anger is always righteous indignation and yours is blowing up all. Oh. So Ephesians 4, here is taught that anger can be prevented from degenerating into sin if a strict time limit is put on it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Embrace reconciliation before nightfall, if at all possible. But if that is not possible, If the one with whom one is angry is not accessible or refuses to be reconciled, then at least your heart should be unburdened by its animosity by committing the whole matter to God. And when you've done so, leave as free and walk away. Philippians 4. Paul speaks especially against anything in the nature of personal, private vengeance. In Romans 12, saying, Leave it to the wrath of God. Duties are ours. Events are the Lord's. You do your duty, sir. Ma'am, leave the event of the changed heart to God. One writer said, Nursing one's wrath to keep it warm is not Christ like, for it magnifies the grievance, makes reconciliation more difficult, and destroys relationships. Yeah. Proverbs 6, 19, One who sows discord among brothers or sisters is an abomination in the sight of God. He's not talking about people outside the church. Hmm. So God's command In place of bitterness, wrath, and anger is kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Now, pastoral question Where is the tent of your mind pitched? Where are you camping? If you are sucking your wrath and anger like hard candy, you are at fault and guilty of sin. Your anger is your own responsibility. That's how God sees it. Obscene talk considered from Colossians 3, 5, obscene, 3, 8, obscene talk. Listen to how the sister epistle factors in here. Ephesians 5, 4, Ephesians 5, 4, and this is ESV. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. New American, no filthiness, or silly talk, or coarse jesting. Filthiness, uncleanness, a foul mouth, Vulgarity, dirty words, dirty thoughts. What about the second one, foolish talk? <laughs> You'll like the Greek behind this. We know the word logos, word. The word was with God. This word is moral logia The prefix, the first word in this compound word, transliterates to moron, moronic. Let no moronic talk proceed. It speaks of talk that is stupid, dull, acting as though you are brainless. Been there done that youth can be especially predisposed especially when the desired outcome is to make people laugh to talking in a brainless way. Paul forbids it Ephesians 5:4. And then there is the third, Ephesians 5, four, crude, joking, or coarse jesting. The concept of this word is that, here is a picture of someone who is nimble of foot, but with her words. They're witty. They're, they can take a phrase or a statement Twist it in a certain way and immediately lead everyone to laughter. It's an old English word, ribaldry, or court gesture. That's where the concept came from, court gesture. But Proverbs speaks here and Proverbs 26, 18 through 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, was I not just joking? Oh. Notice how Proverbs describes the one who says something and then says, oh, I was just joking. It's like someone who's throwing firebrands, arrows, and death. In contrast, Ephesians 4.29 says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. ESV, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let me back up. The coarse jesting the ability to take a phrase, twist it nimbly, and create laughter. (sighs) When we still watched TV, it was this kind of action, behavior, talk, on the part of some lead character in the show that instantly produced laughter. How interesting that the world exalts really bad behavior and we learn to laugh at it and then mimic it in our homes. Hmm? Now I've told you, The problem with the grammar of the gospel is you leave the indicatives of the glories of what Christ has done for us and you enter the imperatives. And he begins saying, Thou shalt not, and thou shalt. He gives commands pertinent, specific, to our speech, our behavior, our words, our thoughts, our actions. Wow. The Colossians have been told to put corrupting talk off, and this is not only obscene vulgarity, but slanderous, contemptuous talk. Contemptuous talk looking down your nose on somebody that you hold in contempt and works to the detriment of the person's address or those spoken about. But in Matthew twelve thirty-six, brethren, Jesus makes a sobering statement sobering statement, declaring that all of us will render an account for every careless word spoken. But I didn't mean that, Mom. You, sir, you, ma'am, are going to render an account for what you are calling a careless word. And that's not the worst of it. What do you think you'll have to render for your cursing? And outright bold anger. Hmm. But I'm one of the elect. Yes, I know. Read Second Corinthians 4 because at the judgment be my seat of Christ, we shall all stand and pass through a fire which will sanctify, and all that is done of Christ will not burn up, but everything that wasn't of Christ will go poof in the fire. And a man may lose everything, and yet, be saved. That's Second Corinthians 4. I want to do more and more that is of Christ. I will not just go poof in the fire. So while the conversation of some Christians is a virtual benediction like reading Pilgrim's Progress, this should be true of the conversation of all Christians. So the Christians have been urged to be known as a thankful people, for believers have received so many blessings from God in grace as well as in nature. that thanksgiving should be a dominant note in their speech, as well as in their thought. Now, look at chapter chapter 3, verse 9, Colossians 3, 9. What is verse 9 all about? I hinted at that last week. Let's develop it briefly. Stop lying to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The odd thing about verse nine is that it follows two very nicely placed this. Of five vices, sins out of the domain of darkness. Verse 5, verse 8. Five sins of the prodigal, and then five sins of the elder brother. And then verse 9 Stop lying to one another. Observe what it doesn't say. It does not say, stop lying. It says, stop lying to one another. Observe also the second person plural nature of all of the Pauline imperities. He never gives these imperatives to you as an individual in your own personal life. He gives them to you as a member of the body of Christ in your local church. That's where the imperatives land. The imperatives are set within the context of believers who are members of one another. And observe, verse 5, that it is not by and large prodigals who lie to each other. They sit at the bar and tell each other the cold, blunt, Naked Truth, and then hug on each other as they sip their beer. Who lies? It's the elder brother sister whose sins eventually come out in full view because of the damage done to the spouse and or children. You need to hear that again, think it through very carefully. It's the elder brother, verse 8, sins that eventually come out because of the excessive damage done in the home. And eventually it spills out, and the lie is found out. Hmm. You can lie about your true self only so long, and then truth will come out. So Paul says to the body, stop lying to one another. I'll say it again probably, but if you come to a men's meeting and they ask how you're doing and you say everything's great, well, sir, that's not what your wife is telling the women. If you come to a women's group meeting and they say how you doing, oh, it's great, but your husband is asking for prayer with the pastor or with the brother. And you say, they shouldn't be gossiping. Come on. If you beat them long enough, eventually they cry out for help. Eventually. Explanation. Verse 13, chapter 3. Forgiveness. What do we do with the parable of the unforgiving servant? Write it off. Here is a man who has pled for time and the master forgives the debt, unheard of, debt canceled, expunged. And he goes out having owed the man millions and millions of dollars and grabs one of his neighbors who owes him a poultry thousand or so chokes him, throws him in prison. What did Christ conclude? The first man didn't learn a lick from the grace he had received from the king. Do you know there are Christian church members all around America who haven't learned a lick from the grace they've received from God the Father through Christ, because they're still strangling their spouse, strangling their neighbor, strangling their brother or sister. But Christ seems to make it clear if you have received that kind of grace from God and failed to give it out. Trouble. And have you observed in the Lord's Prayer how we pray and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? You know how that's really to be understood in light of verses 14 and 15? Jesus, I want you to forgive me my trespasses the same way I'm forgiving others who have trespassed against me. You say, that's not what he said. Yes, it is, read verses 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. But I've got unforgiveness in my heart, but I'm of the elect. Well, why don't you tell me what Jesus meant here in Matthew 5, 6? It doesn't apply to me, really. Hebrews twelve five. 5. Hebrews twelve five. 5. See, I'm not always going to unpack something totally. You are smart enough to figure things out. And that's why I raise the question, let you pray. Hebrews twelve five. five, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Well, what's that mean? That no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble, and by it many become defiled. A root of bitterness which sprouts and springs up causes trouble invariably, and many are those by whom it is defiled. Hebrews 12, 5 says that is to fail to obtain the grace of God. One fearful explanation here is that unforgiveness in the heart suggests strongly that you have not tasted the Lord's forgiveness. Do you know why? Maybe this will speak, maybe it won't. But when I worked in the Max security prison, one of the reasons I could minister to those men, rapists, armed robbery, murderers, that's our categories. One of the reasons I could minister to them was because I viewed myself as every bit as bad as them. I'd read Matthew 5. I knew what I do with my imagination is as bad as what I do with my body. And so I could minister to them not because I'm some great person, but because I knew myself to be a great sinner. If you can't forgive, your eyes aren't on Christ and are not on the enormity of your sin against Christ. 314, consider then the Crowning grace of Christ, love. Galatians 5.22, it is first named in the fruit of the Spirit, love. Romans 13, all the commandments are summed up in love of neighbor. Mm. 1 Corinthians 13.13, but now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Wow. And first John 4, a unique, almost singularly unique statement. God is love. God is love. Why is love right so highly as the premier Christian virtue? Because it is right that highly within the Godhead. The eternal love between the Father and the Son has been theologically described as the person of the Holy Spirit, who is the love between the Father and the Son, but not love conceptually, but love personhood. So Christians are taught to love it is the premier crowning arch of the virtues. 315. The arbitrating peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule. That word rule means umpire. Arbitrate. Hmm. In a ball game, why is the umpire there? To render judgment between opposing sides. When there's an issue and union has to step in, they provide union arbitration that both have to be willing to submit to. You know what the arbitration God the Father provides is peace. And you and I are to submit to that arbitration. Yeah, but they, peace. Wow. The horror is that some of us might be more likely on the job to submit to the arbitration than we do in the church. But in a healthy church body, harmony or peace prevails among the various members, because enjoying peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ should inevitably result in our living at peace with one another. Strife inevitably results when men and women are out of touch with he who is our peace. There is no reason why those who have received the peace which Christ established by his death on the cross should have any other than peaceful relations among themselves. So Paul says in Ephesians 4, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, dear brothers and sisters, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and this gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Why does he say that? Because there are times when you have to bear with me and there are times when we have to bear with you and then closes, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Well, wow. The bond of peace is far more important than me getting my way. The bond of peace is far more important than me getting what I deserve from somebody who's wronged me. Hmm. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Many times I would say to our inmate workers when they bring the food in, and I often would say, Don't bring that into the office, it stinks. And it did. But they bring in the food and then they have ketchup packets. And I would say to Ernst, Ernst, how blessed of God the ketchup covers over a multitude of sins. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it does. Love also covers over a multitude of sins. Application. Where am I per sins of the particle? Where am I, persons of the elder brother? It's true that there can be prodigals behaviorally within a church. But it's much more likely that verse 8 of Colossians 3 describes the sins church members are guilty of and then lying about to one another. Because they never come into a context where they could, should, confess. And that's one of the reasons they don't. They'd rather lie about who they are. We've all a proneness more to one than others. We all have a promise more to one than others. Particle, elder brother. And stereotypically, what our church is made up of, predominantly elder brothers. Particles are out there. But you know who makes some of your best pastors? X particles. Hmm. So, to whom are you being honest and transparent about your sin weakness? It's really fundamental to three, nine. With whom are you being transparent vulnerable about your sin, that you're currently praying about, struggling with. It's a terrible thing if a church has a pastor or pastors, elders or deacons who are lying to one another. The transparency of confession must exist in either a trusted one-to-one relationship or a trusted group relationship. We're not talking about you walking up here and confessing everything in front of everybody. Never said that. But you should be tight enough with someone that you can say, I need your prayer over an issue. I'm struggling with, and it's a glorious thing when small groups begin to do that, too. It has been reported to me that the first Titus 2 ministry saw some of that fruit begin. Blessed be God. Let us embrace the crowning grace of love and the arbitrating peace of Christ in all of our relationships. Let me pray and we come to this blessed gift of Christ to us, Holy Communion. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the glory of being called by you out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of thy love. Thank you that you are the glorious ascended, potentate ruler of all creation, and thus of the church. Now you instruct us to set our mind on things above where you are, not on the earth. O Lord, Maturus, Maturus, make us fit to receive the inheritance of the saints in life, and fit to be used by you to your glory in this area, especially as we relocate to Troy. Our Father, speak to us through communion. Let us see you, let us touch you, let us taste you, let us smell you. In Christ's name, amen.